one, like due process just doesn't exist. Like the law is bad and the courts are bad. And we're in this negotiation where we're just like fighting for scraps constantly. It's like you can do legal service provision all day, but it's ultimately a band-aid. It's ultimately a harm reduction strategy. And and I think for us and all these questions, like what are the abolitionist approaches, the non-reformist reforms that are going to get a, get us closer to where we want to go? This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Good evening and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for Who's Security? Communities Resisting the Post-9-11 Global Security Framework. My name is Nadia Ben Youssef. I am the Director of Advocacy at the Center for Constitutional Rights. And tonight's event is the first of a four-part series that CCR has developed with Haymarket to mark the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Today, we've brought together an extraordinary group of lawyers, artists, and activists who've committed their gifts and their skills to resisting the intolerable reality of the last two decades, where the US used a tragic act to launch a platform of shocking human rights abuses around the world. Those policies enacted after 9-11 reinforced abuses of power, othering, marginalization, and violence. They shaped policing and immigration, normalized domestic surveillance, and further entrenched belligerent foreign policy. And all of this in the name of so-called global security. And so this conversation is an opportunity to ask, who's security? Who is secure under racist border regimes that separate families? Who is secure when decision makers can suspend human rights or create loopholes for indefinite detention? Who is secure when resistance to the status quo is criminalized? Who is secure when our public wealth is invested in militarization and what Mariam Kaba calls death-making institutions? instead of in the critical infrastructure of a life-giving society, clean air and water, education, housing, universal healthcare. Tonight, we'll explore the human rights crisis of the post 9-11 era and trace the seepages of these policies, and in particular, the ever-expanding terrorism framework. In the spirit of Dr. Angela Davis, we'll also grasp things at the root and look to our history and contextualize the last 20 years in a US history of imperialism and settler colonialism, of genocide and enslavement. Tonight, we'll also talk about what human security actually looks like, how to build a society of collective safety. This is a space of conversation and of community of reflection, reckoning, and imagination. So I am honored to introduce our panelists for this evening. Sadie Barnett is a multimedia artist whose practice illuminates her own family history as it mirrors a collective history 
of repression and resistance in the United States. Sadie's work is in permanent collections across the country, and I invite folks to check out her website, sadiebarnett.com, for more about her work and current exhibitions. Omar Farah is the Director of Strategic Initiatives and a Senior Staff Attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights. He represented Muslim men detained in Guantanamo and litigates against abusive policing and counterterrorism practices. He was also the lead attorney in a case revealing the government's expansive surveillance of the movement for Black Lives. Silky Shah is the executive director of Detention Watch Network, a national coalition building, coalition building power to abolish immigrant detention in the United States. She is a longtime organizer for racial and migrant justice, challenging immigrant detention and mass incarceration. And finally, Tarek Ismail is an associate professor of law at CUNY and former attorney at CLEAR, representing Muslim, Arab, South Asian, and other communities in the New York City area that have been particularly affected by national security and counterterrorism policies. Tarek is also a proud Palestinian who has long advocated for Palestinian liberation. It is an honor to be with you all. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us tonight. I want to start by giving you each a bit more space to introduce yourselves to the audience um, and answer, you know, what brings you to this conversation and, and into this struggle. So I'll start with Sadie. Welcome, Sadie. Thank you so much. Um, I want to really just give a moment to thank, you know, um, those that came before me, both on this land and in this profession, um, you know, there's a lot of shoulders that I ride on today. Um, and I also just want to say how honored I am to be in this conversation with you all. Um, you know, you are all doing work that, you know, I think about um, kind of in a past tense with my particular project, but you guys are doing this work on the ground, you know, with so much at stake today. And I just really value that. And it's an honor to be here. I look forward to, you know, talking and dialoguing and also learning a lot probably today. Um, so just to briefly introduce myself, I am an artist. I'm based in Oakland, California, where I was born and raised. And my artwork, it's very multimedia. It spans from drawing, photography, installations, wallpaper, family photographs, but it's always um, rooted in kind of telling my family story as it connects to a larger you know, history of American history. And my work also has to do with, you know, thinking about the systems that we live under, but also thinking about what's possible beyond those systems and what's possible um, in ways that we don't even have language for yet. Um, and really what brings me to this conversation today is a project that I've been working on for a few years now that draws as source material a 500-page FBI file, surveillance file that was amassed on my father, Rodney Barnett, during his time with the Black Panthers in Southern California and his time working on Angela Davis's trial up here in the Bay Area. And my family filed a Freedom of Information Act request. And after almost five years of back and forth with the FBI, you know, none of us being lawyers, but literally Googling how to file a FOIA um, after five years, we got back this really intense, emotional, infuriating, chilling dossier that really my first reaction was, I'm actually really lucky that my dad is alive. Um, and so how can I 
use this file, reclaim it, use it to make art and tell his story. And so that is um, kind of what keeps me going, what I've been working on and what brings me here today. Thank you so much, Sadie. I'm so excited to get into this conversation. Um, Omar. Yeah, really um, couldn't be happier to have, um, especially the, the voice of an artist with us as we try to make sense of the last 20 years. Um, there are some, some questions for us to explore and some things I think we already know, which is that law and policy isn't isn't enough to get us out of the experiences that that so many of the clients that I've represented and worked with, um, and I know Silky and, and Tarek as well uh, have experienced. But um, yeah, really looking forward to getting getting into it all. Um, so CCR was, was born out of the, the movement for racial justice in in the South, and and that is uh, the centerpiece, the, the backbone of our institutional identity. But it's it's also true that after the September 11th attacks, a lot of our institutional thinking and resources and commitment um, was, was directed to responding um, to, the, to the campaign really of, of violence and torture and extrajudicial abuse um, domestically and, and internationally, predominantly of, of Muslim um, uh, African South Asian individuals, and that's and that's as it should be. Um, CCR uh, was instrumental in, in identifying who the first uh, men being held at Guantanamo in Comunicado were, and organizing uh, what some have referred to as the largest mass defense uh, effort, and getting them counsel. Um, and was at the forefront of challenging the targeted assassination of American citizens by drones. Uh, abusive immigration sweeps of Muslim men following 9/11, and and uh, and representing the victims of torture and, and sexual humiliation at at Abu Ghraib, and and I think the experiences, the um, uh, the fact that that the people we've worked with survived that and continue to uh, demand justice and accountability, even 20 years on, compels us to to reflect on what we've learned and what we've done well. And the things that we haven't done well and that we need to learn and change and pivot. And so um, I'm really excited also uh, to, to learn from, from from people I respect and whose work I um, I think is really instrumental in this effort. So um, I'll, I'll stop there, but um, couldn't be happier to be um, here with you all and looking forward to talking more. Thank you so much, Omar. Silky, what brings you to this conversation and into this struggle? Welcome, Silky. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I'm really honored to be a part of this conversation. And first, want to thank Center for Constitutional Rights and also Haymarket for putting together. I think we're in this moment of learning and reflection, and it's been really remarkable to see how much Haymarket has done to, to sort of foster that. Um, and wonderful to be here with all of you. So, um, yeah, and I mean, I think for me, so much of what I what I'm bringing to this conversation, what I'm excited about discussing is this sort of intersection of anti-imperialist struggles with abolitionist struggles here and how we're sort of thinking about these things in relationship to each other. And I think Detention Watch Network um, came out of 
a moment post-1996 when we were starting to see the growth of immigration detention in the U.S. because of two laws that were passed um, in 1996, the Anti-Terrorism Effective Death Penalty Act, EDPA, and IRA-IRA, the Legal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act that really completely changed how we look at immigration in that all of a sudden now people who were not subject to detention deportation were starting to be targeted in the name of national security, border security, um, and exclusion. And so much of this is about a shift towards nativist policies during that period of time. Um, you know, DWN, Detention Watch Network, was it was a lot of folks who cared about the growth of detention then. Um, and more seeing more and more people being targeted because through the criminal justice system, criminal punishment system. Um, but then after 9-11, we saw just a mass amount of money being funneled into it and detention has just ex exponentially grown since then. So I think, you know, in so many ways coming to this conversation, it's thinking about how much that this thing that exists, this sort of intersection of policy to keep people out and also policy that has made the US the world's leading incarcerator has gotten us to this place. Um, and like you said, Omar, like, what do we learn from that? What are the reflections and where do we go from here? I think in this moment where it felt like maybe there was some possibility post Trump, some of that especially this last few weeks. And for all of us, um, I imagine who were, you know, growing up our growing up our activist selves during the post 9-11 period and seeing what's happening and reflecting. It's been a sort of challenging moment um, to see where we're at now. So I'm looking forward to this conversation and really grateful to be here. Thank you so much, Silky. Uh, Tarek, what brings you here? Uh, thank, thank you so much, Nadia. Thanks to uh, CCR and, um, and especially, uh, as Silky said, the Haymarket for uh, for really, uh, you know, reflecting throughout on the moment that we found ourselves in uh, in, in the past twenty years and offering us this moment again to to look back. Um, you know, I, I think it bears um, saying that that so many of us come to this place from a very personal. A very personal experience. Um, I grew up in a mosque where uh, by the time I was 16, kids were joking about how the sprinklers might have microphones uh, in them, in the ceiling. Um, and, and I think that drove a lot of us to think about what we might do about that and think about sort of how, how real uh, that, that sentiment was. Um, you know, I spent um, I spend time sort of my, my work focuses on the judicial, subjudicial, and extrajudicial ways in which this all plays out. So, and we think about the courts as as one way of sort of um, enacting the injustices that we're talking about here, the ways in which folks were entrapped or convicted of, of material support and, and thrown into um, cages for many, many of them for years and the rest of their lives. Um, but this manifests in other ways that don't even see the courts, um, with the FBI um, knocking on people's doors and the NYPD in ways that really go to um, the core 
of of communities um, across across the country, and of course, extrajudicial ways in which you know Omar mentioned sort of the imperialist um, jaunts of our military um, and, and the drone strikes, which continue despite having um, uh, said that we were pulling out our military of Afghanistan by by the thirty first. Um, so really, I'm I'm interested in reflecting with 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 um, you know my my co-panelists here, who I'm honored to be with, on the ways in which our um, very existence as a society has been shifted by um, by the use of the language of terrorism, by the the structures that have imbued themselves into everything that we do, by this notion that we might eliminate risk and bring it down to zero, and that we will do so at all costs and at the expense of um, communities who were willing to throw under the bus to do it. So I'm really excited to have that conversation. I thank you so much for, for having us. Thank you so much, Tarek. And you're bringing us right to the present moment. Um, and so I want to start, you know, as we're framing this conversation, I want to start with you, Silky. Um, you know, we're meeting and marking 20 years since 9-11 at a time of deep pain and crisis across the world. Communities are suffering and forced to flee their homes because of the impacts of war, colonization, climate catastrophe. And like Tarek mentioned, you know, I'm thinking particularly, and I know we all are, about Afghanistan and how destructive U.S. policies of war and militarism are resulting in a mass exodus of people from their country, only to be met, of course, with extreme hostility in potential places of refuge. So I wonder if you can ground us in some reflections on the impact of the U.S.'s project of imperialism and domination, particularly on the rights of migrants and refugees broadly. And in the context of this post 9-11 era, how those political decisions have disrupted concepts of borders, territory, and the rights of people to stay, to move, to return to their homelands. Um, hoping you can offer some, some grounding there. Yeah, um, I, I can try. I mean, that's a lot to to put in, but I will, I mean, the the quote that comes to mind is from the Sri Lankan writer Shivanandan, which is, we're here because you were there, um, talking about the British um, role in Sri Lanka and so much of the world in terms of British colonization. And I think for the US, when we think about um, the role that it's played, I mean, some of it is very direct in that sense, right? The role that the U in both in terms of occupation and wars waged in other parts of the world, the Philippines, Vietnam, um, in Central America in the 80s, and then of course in the war on terror period in Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, um, and understanding the impact that has on those communities and disruption. But I, but I also think it's so important that it, it's broader than that in in so many ways. It is also about economic disruption and the sort of obvious example there is the North American Free Trade Agreement and sort of what that did to people's livelihoods um, in Mexico and beyond. And then also in more recent years and what I anticipate is gonna be really one of the big fights of our lifetimes is climate disasters across the world and how much 
you know, in, in some ways it might feel indirect, but really it's very much tied to U.S. consumption um, leading to the world that we have now, which is being increasingly disrupted and displacing people from their homes. And so I think we're when we think about the role that the U.S. has played, it's 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 quite massive um, and has led to a situation where we have a lot of migrants, refugees, people seeking refuge. I think the thing that is unique about the U.S. Um, in the context of this, again, is this role that the U.S. plays as a carceral state, as a state that's completely committed to that. And, and so much of what we've seen about these policies are, you know, nativist policies over the years pre-9-11, um, really starting in the 80s, where we started to see more and more around framing it around the war on drugs, um, leading to these in the you know nativist policies in the name of sort of white supremacy, like very much looking at this idea that the U.S. is a white national state, and um, and then that sort of expanding the scope of incarceration in this country. And so I think it's so important to understand the treatment of migrants and refugees is also really grounded in you know, anti-Black racism in the U.S. and how that intersects. And I, I think um, as we look at sort of, yeah, so I, I think there's a unique thing that's happening in the U.S. around that. And then as we look forward, I mean, I think that's led to the U.S. having the world's largest detention system. I think Tarek started talking a little bit about what we're seeing in terms of surveillance. It's it's about the number of people that are under this scope of custody or in the sort of security state and knowing who's there and under and having sort of this like umbrella of tracking people and understanding what's happening there. I think the other thing we're going to start seeing more and it already is starting to happen with the remain in Mexico policy um, that the Supreme Court just upheld um, and also things like say third country agreements where you have these interdiction models. So the U.S people would come and we would incarcerate them for seeking asylum or incarcerate them because of their, you know, encounters with the criminal punishment system. But now it's also what are we doing to prevent people from coming in the first place and sort of having this way station model. Um, and so I think it, you know, as we look at those reflections, I think there, you know, there's a lot of questions right now in the work that we do around detention where people are saying, well, maybe if we keep detention, at least that means that people can come. And it's, you know, you're in this sort of challenge of you want people to be able to come. You don't want a situation where people are incarcerated when they're come. And but then you're in this like these are the options that are given. And it's, you know, it's a really huge challenge. Um, so, yeah, leave it there. Thank you, Silky. Huge challenge. And this this kind of instinct of the state to confine and to control as if that there is no alternative to that. I, I, I want us to maybe turn Omar, if you, if you don't mind to, you know, in this, in this conversation, particularly around the instinct of the state to confine. And I think also, you know, where you started Silky around um, militarizing and borders and exclusions. I want us to turn to Guantanamo. And I think, you know, this is a centerpiece of the post 9-11 architecture. Um, and 
I think building on what Silky was saying that, you know, there was a time where we thought this place was exceptional. You know, it was a prison camp for hundreds of Muslim boys and men who we were holding indefinitely without charge on land that we stole from Cuba. And it was shocking, you know, and it, it remains shocking in its lawlessness, its secrecy, its cruelty. And as you're hearing, you know, Silky kind of ex- talk more about this culture of carceral control and incarceration. I'm wondering, you know, what you're, what you want us to know um, about what this particular prison camp um, and your years representing men in Guantanamo, what does it reveal about the United States? Um, reflections that you might want to share. Yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, I, it's hard to know where to start, even though this is something you know, I've been thinking about for, for a very long time. And um, I, it feels worth it to acknowledge just the, the scale of suffering and and destabilization and um, and and pain and sort of um, uncertainty that that um, people in Afghanistan are are having to to endure and have been enduring for the last two two decades. It's also a you know just a, a very surreal um, sort of horror to see play out given given that it's exactly the same kinds of scenes that that are sort of the genesis of the Guantanamo experiment. And um, and sort of with that in mind, I mean, I think uh, part of what I'm, I'm taking from, from Silky's comments and, and that resonates with the work that I've done is just how much of a fiction the, the notion that, that detention uh, and certainly the kind of detention that, um, that those of us on this panel, Tarek and Silky, work around uh, keeps... Uh, keep society secure and, and safe. Um, I, I think of Guantanamo much more as, um, uh, you know, as a legal and um, sort of narrative expression. I think Guantanamo serves a really important purpose in the infrastructure of counterterrorism policy. It's it's um, it's a place that sort of allows all of the other abuses and uh, degradation to sort of play out. It's the outer limits of what's possible of abuse if the victims are, are brown and Muslim and, and, and poor. And so that's kind of the, the, the framing that I, over time has, has, has come to me. I mean, I'm also wrestling a little bit with this concept of, of borders, um, you know, thinking about the U.S. projection of power uh, in Afghanistan immediately following uh, 9/11. How contested border regions became. All of the clients that I represent, for example, were apprehended, trying to get out of um, the the violence and the destruction in Afghanistan. And in some ways, that's the very thing that made them uh, suspicious and and criminalized them in much the same way that um, you know immigrants fleeing um, all kinds of crises, uh, are presumptively threatening and, and unwanted at our, at our borders. And then, you know, the, the very particular decision on the part of the U S government to hold these men at Guantanamo, um, precisely because the, the scope of, of the protections of U S law, such as they are, would, would not be available to them at Guantanamo. And that sort of original sin, I think is the thing that, that has shaped the experience for the last uh, 20 years and counting that and the very explicit uh, misinformation campaign and the demonization of of the of the early prisoners, uh, particularly because of their their identity, um, their their race, and 
and we're not really talking so much about about capitalism yet, but but their poverty as well. Um, I mean, just a thought experiment. Try to imagine the things you know of Guantanamo and substitute any other single religious group or single ethnic identity and try to imagine that uh, offshore detention prison and the, the facade sort of collapses and it's it's immediately apparent how uh, grotesque a place it is. And uh, I think it's also worth sort of reflecting on how so much of the history of Guantanamo from that early moment has been a contest between you know the prisoners who've been demanding um, their their dignity and demanding that they be recognized as people and the um, the crude attempts on the part of the government and the law and policy to to make that impossible. Um, at at first, it, the presumption was that the the men at Guantan the names of the men at Guantanamo who actually populated those cells and those detention camps was something that could not be known uh, for 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 risk of uh, jeopardizing national security. Um, if you think about what those of us who practice law think about um, sort of the value of, be, of having access to the court, it's to be able to translate your real world demands, your petition for redress into legal doctrine so that it can be recognized by the state and you can get the relief that you need. Predictable then that that, that also was a right that was by design deprived of the men at Guantanamo and how much of the history of Guantanamo is a tug of war between the men demanding that uh, the government begrudgingly making concessions with trumped up kangaroo courts and, and administrative processes all short of the real kind of due process protections that that any of us would demand for ourselves. Um, you know, I think about about just the right to, to protest uh, and how how protest has been central to experience of Guantanamo from the very earliest days. The first organized political hunger strike at Guantanamo began in 2002, just months after the prison opened up and, and the U.S. government and the military in particular has meant to uh, diminish and, and, and deny um, the, the scale and the political motivations behind those protests really from, from the outset. And, you know, I, I won't try to retrace the, the long history of it, but I think about the 2013 mass hunger strike and how the government was overtaken by mutually reinforcing narratives of prisoners talking about brutal force feeding and um, and the physical effects of starvation um, and and had to concede that this is actually what's happening and this is I think the most accurate reflection of the, the sort of the ugliness of Guantanamo um, at the right to have a voice, uh, you know, I, I, I think also you think about the elaborate secrecy regime around Guantanamo, which ensures that sort of the closest that most people get to Guantanamo is hearing from, you know, an attorney or someone else who is proximate to the lived experience of, of those folks. So that, that demonization, I think, is the thing that has started to shape domestic policy. I know I think Tarek and others might start to speak about that a little bit more, but those are the things that come to mind. Thank you so much, Omar. And I know I'm asking big questions and this is lifelong work. Um, and as Dada, you were saying, deeply personal work. So thank you for that. And, you know, on this concept of, you know, othering and demonization, Tarek, you know, if you can go a bit deeper um, into the domestic blowback of this, you know, counterterrorism policies post 9-11, um, 
the targeting of Muslim life. I mean, your your reflection early on about the sprinklers at the mosque, you know, and um, what did it mean for you to represent Muslim Arab South Asian clients in a post 9-11 world? And and what is it about this sort of infrastructure of post 9-11 that leaves communities so vulnerable to the abuse of the state? Um, you know, you, you think about the degree to which, um, as I think Silky mentioned, um, a well-oiled machine was already in place to um, bring the hammer down on Muslim communities in the U.S. when um, when the events of 9/11 took place. Um, you know, you think about how the FBI. Um, was surveilling a community in Chicago starting as early as, you know, 1996, um, looking into the Palestinian community's ties potentially to Hamas there, which had recently or recently there too been listed as a terrorist organization. Um, You think about the uh, Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, which criminalized material support in 1996 and set up a list of foreign terrorist organizations and made it possible to, you know, effectively criminalize links between individuals and um, providing material support, which later would come to look like translating books or holding socks for someone who was a member of those organizations. All of that um, happened before um, September 11th. All of that infrastructure um, was in place. And and so, you know, you think about the politicized way in which that happened. Um, and in that context, of course, um, Palestinians were at the tip of the spear of the FBI's um, ire when in using the language of, of terrorism. You, you look at the prosecution of someone like Abdel Halim Ashkar um, in, in uh, 1998 when he was imprisoned here in the United States. Mohammed Salah, who was impris- uh, imprisoned also in the in the 90s and later prosecuted um, uh, on the basis of uh, uh, coerced um, and and tortured um, confessions that he made in Israeli prisons. All of that stuff was in place um, before the events of September 11th happened. So when, um, you know, September 12th came, uh, a well-oiled machine sort of lurched into motion um, and the community, the Muslim community here, um, was left to sort of react to something that was, um, you know, already already going, and it it um, it, it really sort of brought to uh, brought into relief um, this these contending notions of trust in government that existed within these communities. Um, Certain parts of the community, the immigrant communities and others who have sort of a veneration of the government as something that was their saving grace or something that if you relied upon it might deliver you um, into salvation. And others, especially black Muslim communities who have been at the business end of um, government surveillance for for centuries, for decades and decades and centuries, um, uh, offering potential guidance for um, the rest of the Muslim community on how to on how to deal with it. And each time revelations would come out conferring suspicion uh, as uh, confirming suspicion as to what was going on, whether it's the FBI's um, radicalization 
manual on what it takes for a young Muslim man to become violent, including things like growing a beard, stopping drinking, going to the mosque, shaving your beard, uh, stopping going to the mosque. Anything that a young Muslim man would do might become radicalized, uh, viewed as a radicalizing um, enterprise. When that stuff came out um, in, in you know, Freedom of Information Act litigation, um, the communities who were guiding, especially black Muslim communities, were gaslit, right? They were told like, oh, yeah, of course, of course, we knew all along that this was the case, while at the same time, many uh, other members of the community were sort of regularly working with government and continuing to, to venerate them, right? And so this dynamic um, existed for over and over and over again. You saw it again with the NYPD's surveillance of, of Muslim communities um, and the ways in which that surveillance went down. So I think a lot of this was um, sort of an exercise in confirming suspicions of the government and learning, pulling the, the mask off of government um, and the ways in which it surveils communities and really understanding um, that the, the, the degree to which um, you know, our community, the Muslim community here was not special. It was not going to be protected. And it was not especially um, good uh, in the ways it might've perceived itself to be. Um, and, and those lessons, unfortunately, weren't learned early enough from the black Muslim communities who could have, who could have certainly taught them to, um, to other uh, segments of our, of, of the Muslim communities here. So, I mean, I, I think a lot of, um, representing Muslim communities in this country, Nadia, um, was answering the question. It felt like some version of answering the question at a Know Your Rights pr uh, presentation. Well, what will happen if I say, no, I won't talk to you? Won't they be suspicious of me? As if by answering questions, you would get rid of that suspicion, right? And I think over and over again, the Muslim community learned, and, and still not all of the Muslim community has learned this, but the Muslim community in this country learned over and over again that regardless of what you do, how many times you offer tea to the FBI, how many times they come to your mosque, you sit down with them, you offer them information on your community, whatever, there are forces at play um, that are not going to disavow them of the suspicion you have of you. Uh, Uncle Muhammad, right? And so that's just a dynamic that was continually learned over and over and over again. And it's something that I think we're continuing now uh, to to contend with. And, and just to put a fine point on it, I think that the language of terrorism is something that makes it really difficult to contend with it because it directly, um, you know, it directly forces someone to choose between American exceptionalism um, and, and something else. Um, and so when you're forced to undercut the language of terrorism and think beyond it as if sort of, um, you know, as if to question it, you you get to this quote that uh, I pulled up from Bill Clinton um, from the 2016 DNC. Um, Bill Clinton was addressing sort of Muslims and how he perceived their status in America. And this is 2016. Right. Um, where his wife lost. And he says, um, if you're a Muslim and you love America and freedom and you hate terror, stay here and help us win and make a future together. We want you. Right. So the otherizing in the language here, right, the degree to which you are not meant to be made secure, you are part of the project to keep us secure from you. 
is built into the way that we talk about um, this this enterprise. And it, if you watch the news today about Afghanistan, it is still built into it at this very moment. And in fact, it's hardening uh, more, more and more. Um, so just to start, I mean, it's a huge topic to think about. Um, and I, I appreciate the space for it, Nadia. Oh, Tarek, that was that was extraordinary, and it leads us so well into Sadie. What I hope you'll be able to share, because it's that you know you said Tarek, the pulling off the mask, right? Pulling off the mask, confirming suspicions, um, the sort of otherizing that is by design, you know, in our laws and policies that marginalizes communities. And Sadie, your work as an artist and a public archivist counters this long legacy of state surveillance that Tarek was mentioning, Silky, you know, others have said this infrastructure was in place long before 9-11. You know, in particular, you have focused your work on the targeting of the Black freedom movement. And I wonder if you can share more about your work. We're so honored to have you here and to kind of walk us through um, your own reflections on the instincts of the state, the ideologies that drive this kind of mass criminalization and othering of communities and of movements. So I'm going to stop and, and turn it over to you. Thank you, Sadie. Absolutely. Um, there are so many connections and parallels. Um, and yeah, I'm just over here like nodding my head, you know, on my little screen, but it's just, um, you know, there's so many connections and most of it is actually infuriating that, you know, it continues to be like the same um, playbook that we see over and over, um, you know, within our communities. But just to take it super specifically to my father's story, which is also the story of, you know, so many families um, in this country across the decades, but just to take it specifically to my story in hopes that it can connect, um, you know, a wider audience to this story and connect to other stories, um, especially to what's going on today. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, we filed a Freedom of Information Act request. We received as a family this really chilling um, surveillance file. And I think that, you know, maybe for people who don't work on these issues closely, when we think surveillance, perhaps it can sound a bit um, benign or passive, like simply a collecting of information. Um, but what, you know, we know to be true and what was proven, especially in a very um, personal way for me in this file, was that it's much more than that. It is harassment, it's intimidation, it's fomentation of personal disputes, disruption of marriages and families, um, it's, you know, psychological trauma, paranoia, although it's not really paranoia if it's true, um, and even, you know, we know as far as assassination. So surveillance, I think you have to really, you know, um, unpack even what that means and put all of these into, um, into under that umbrella. Um, and I can share some images of the work um, to make it a little bit less abstract. And, you know, there's so many things within the file that I could point to, but I'm you know not going to take up a lot of time in this moment. But one thing that I think kind of exemplifies so much of what was in the file is um, the fact that we found out my father was fired from his job at the post office. Um, you know, you can see very clearly in the pages that because he wears his post office uniform to one of the Panther meetings, 
informant at the Panther meeting then reports back that he's a government employee um, and works for the post office. And so after, you know, the FBI shows up at the post office and all of his personnel file is handed over, my father is let go from his job. And the reason cited is conduct unbecoming a government employee um, because he was living with a woman that he wasn't married to. And this law of um, conduct unbecoming a government employee was actually an executive order put on the books by Truman to mostly target gay folks in government employment. And so um, in this case, it's used against my father for living with a woman that he's not married to, although we know, of course, the real reason is his activism. But to me, it's this like crystal clear moment of, you know, sometimes people might think a law isn't about them. And so it's none of their business. They have, you know, quote unquote, nothing to hide. And, you know, you might think, well, I'm not trans in the military, so this doesn't affect me. Or I'm not, you know, an immigrant, so this law doesn't have to do anything with me. But it shows that laws can be used and targeted in, you know, very manipulative ways um, against whoever is deemed, you know, a threat at the time, which can change. Um, so to really dive into the artwork, I, I think that you guys are probably looking at an image of a bunch of these drawings that I'm working on. Um, so these are individual pages of the FBI file that I've rendered in graphite on paper. They're 60 inches by 48 inches wide. So, you know, kind of a little bit larger than human scale. And I've inverted the pages, you know, from black on white to white on black to, you know, further transmute it from the original source and intent. And, you know, I'm in my studio really spending time with each of these pages, rendering, you know, in graphite, trying to make um, tangible, really um, this slowed down labor intensive act of making these pages into drawings. I'm also meditating on, you know, the politics, the bravery, the real lives that are at stake in this story. Um, you know, it isn't hypothetical or just aesthetic, my interest in um, this time in our country, but there's really, um, I feel in some ways, public opinion has maybe changed, you know, in the last decade even or so more favorably about the Black Panthers, but there's been no actual reparations, no repair, um, you know, for families that were ripped apart, lost loved ones. We still have folks incarcerated, even with, you know, high profile cases. And so, to me, there's just so much um, care and grieving that needs to go back into these stories and how they resonate today. Um, so this exhibition that you're looking at is a current exhibition that's called Legacy and Legend at the Benton Museum at Pomona College, which is actually still on view in Southern California through December 19th, I believe. Um, and the next image is actually an image of my father um, looking at these works. And at one point he was asked, um, you know, how he felt kind of seeing his personal information through my work, you know, splashed across museum walls. And he said that it made him feel free. And, you know, that was kind of a moment where I'm like, okay, you know, there's not much I can control in this world, but if I can make my father who has lived through this history feel free for even one moment in this country, that, you know, I'll take, I'll take that, um, as, as a win of the work. Um, you can see like on the right hand side, there's an image of, um, you know, a mugshot, which is kind of the crystallization of how 
um, you know, a mugshot is really intended to criminalize, to dehumanize somebody and instantly turn them, you know, into a number and a suspect. Um, the next three images are like details of specific drawings. So this first one is kind of a title page of the, um, you know, investigation. You can see that there are flowers that I have woven into the drawing. And I'm really thinking about that as a way to kind of create some care. You know, we use flowers to honor, to mourn, to memorialize, to think about, um, you know, domestic rituals and really trying to locate these stories in the living room and in the family. Um, and the next image this um, piece is entitled Informants. And so really thinking about um, how people were affected, continue to be affected under the lens of state, um, you know, surveillance from two angles. So Betty Medsker, who has um, a book I really recommend called The Burglary about a 1971 break-in of a FBI office by concerned citizens and activists in um, Pennsylvania in 1971. She writes that the FBI, um, you know, under Hoover, all the way down to the local levels, thought of Black Americans as falling into two gap categories, Black people who should be spied on by the FBI and Black people who should spy on other Black people for the FBI. Um, so you can see, you know, all the names of the informants are redacted, but it's like LAT2, LAT3. So this would be a Los Angeles informant. They have these numbers. And then I'm adding spray paint gestures to kind of, um, you know, think about that really complicated and fraught relationship of the multiple ways that we are under this thumb. Um, and the next image is kind of an explosion of roses, this time referencing, uh, again, the domestic, these look almost like a wallpaper. And I'm really trying to insert my own layer of redactions to say that there is something unknowable and unsurveillable, um, you know, within our communities, within our family, within these struggles. And then the very last image is these kind of um, Hello Kitties. I think of it as like a little people's army of Hello Kitties. Um, and the information in this actual page is the FBI passing around a copy of the Panther newspaper and looking for individuals to surveil from within the pages of the um, newspaper. So I really was thinking about how even, you know, culture um, and media are under scrutiny. Um, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates's father, Paul Coates, was also under surveillance simply for owning a black bookstore, right? So obviously we know that knowledge is going to be one of the most dangerous things, you know, almost as dangerous as a free breakfast program, right? Which J. Edgar Hoover famously said was the most dangerous element of the Black Panther Party. Um, so yeah, that's all the images that I want to share. I'll leave it there and hopefully we can kind of, you know, um, intersect some of these ideas on top of each other. Wow. Thank you so much, Sadie. The power of art to resist, to chart the future to allow us to understand, um, to make real, you know, these policies, these laws. I really appreciate that and love this concept of transmuting from the original intent, really taking back that power and turning the, the light back onto the state. Extraordinary. I, just for a few minutes, want you all, you know, and want to invite you to, to build and respond to each other. And then I want to 
move us into kind of this last section where we're going to talk more about, you know, resistance that Sadie is leading us into and abolition and what safety means. But if there's anything that came up that you might want to just build on, we'll take a few minutes now. Happy to start with Silky if you have something that you want to offer. <laughs> I'm looking at you. Omar, were you going to say something? Because I can go. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I think on, um, you know, I think the conversation in some ways, the the post 9-11 period and what we've started to talk about is like it was a well-oiled machine. There's a lot in place, but we we also like, I think what's so interesting about like there there have been moments where things could have shifted. So with Guantanamo, there was a moment where actually it could have shut down, but then it got blocked. I think this year we're already seeing that with a lot of immigration efforts. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how things play out with um, the departure from Afghanistan. And it's obviously been really, really hard to watch, and um, but so significant that it's happening. And I think there's like what I've realized just in so many ways that it's just that mentality. Like, so there, you know, so much of it was in the laws, it was a part of the conversation, but the money being funneled in the U S becoming even more of a sort of security state, a fortress state where we're going to in, in a sort of like neoliberal moment where actually we're going to have all these contracts across the board and, um, really solidify this idea of security. And, I, and one of the things that comes to mind is earlier this year when Biden came into office, he, you know, and, and this is sort of being adjusted, um, put forth interior enforcement priorities. And the framework for these priorities were actually just like the story that we're telling. It's, you know, there are three places where they're going to target immigrants for detention and deportation. One was border security and, you know, we're, you know, this is about protecting our borders. This is the framework we're preventing people from coming in. Who are these people? Why are we preventing them from coming in? Not totally clear, but for some reason we need to do that. Second was national security. We, you know, this is in the name of stopping terrorism. Um, and the last one was, is, and, and as we've been all talking about, and it, it, it's always going to be there. This is so much about this idea that, um, this country needs to be protected in the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. And the last one was public safety. So it's like all these sort of tropes of, you know, the border security piece is around really anti-Latinx, anti-Mexican, like we want to protect the U.S. from becoming majority minority. The, the obvious like national security trope is very much around anti-Muslim Islamophobia, like really targeting that community. And then public safety is very much in this like anti-black racism framework. And so it's sort of interesting to see like, like they're telling us like, like DHS and ICE are telling us this is what we're doing. This is what we're going to do. And one of the things that came up for me, the, the last thing I'll say, I mean, so much of it's hard for for me to not think about the Obama administration and the the failures of that eight years and how much it really reinforced a lot of these tropes. And I think what Obama did in so many ways was made people believe that this targeting of people for their past criminal convictions was a progressive reform. Like I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to do this thing, and it's going to be, I'm going to do it well, I'm going to do it better than Bush did it. And I'm going to implement things like secure communities, which is actually the intention of secure communities is to target immigrants 
who are encountering the criminal punishment system. But it's also like, it's just like, let's have the FBI and DHS and all these other entities have each other's information and target as many people as we can when we need to. And so it was, you know, so much this framework that he solidified and actually fueled a lot of what Trump was able to do. And now in this this moment, I think, you know, we're in this challenge where, Tarek, you were talking a lot about how Muslims had to be this the, the good Muslim, the good versus bad Muslim. I think so much of the, the story of the immigrant rights movement for the last 20 years trying to pass a bill has been who are the good immigrants, who are the bad immigrants. And it's because of these tropes. And I think 9-11 in this sort of you know, framework that we have to negotiate has really fostered that. So, um, yeah, I'll just leave it there. Can I can I reflect on that? There's a um, um, the set of documents that came to light in a case that CCR uh, litigated against the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI for the the surveillance and. Uh, really the cooperation between federal and local law enforcement and surveilling black political speech predominantly after the uh, killing of Eric Garner and, and, and so many others. And um, it, it was a, a news article, like just this typical um, tabloid kind of trash that was circulated internally within DHS about the, the work that ISIS was doing to recruit the Ferguson protesters and how law enforcement had to be extra vigilant um, in, you know, and being prepared to police those those protests. And you think about the hyper-militarized reaction to black political speech when when Silky said, like, they're telling us how they how they they see this framework. You know, that's that's always what I took from that that document. If there was, you know, if, if we struggle in our social movements and our organizing to figure out a way to, you know, to to live out the intersections of our identity and organize around them and build power around them. The government is telling us exactly what the the map is for that in a a pretty horrifying uh, way. I I had just one, I don't know, Nadia, if there's a, if you can tolerate a non-moderator question. One question for, not to put Tarek on the spot if you wanted to reflect, but listening to Sadie's story about her father, um, you know, being targeted for wearing his his work uniforms, post office uniform at a, um, at, a, at a Black Panther a, event, um, and your comments about good Muslim versus bad Muslim, good identity versus bad identity, uh, you know, some of what I think is the most challenging is what what do we do with the fact that once the surveillance state sort of turns on our communities and you are watched around the clock, all of us, but most of us, will will run afoul of the law at some point, and and so. Oftentimes, I think, you know, the Muslim communities end up having to fight back from under what can be within the, you know, whatever we want to say about the law, but within the legal framework, an actual uh, infraction or, 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 or verifiable charge and, and how we push back against what that means in our work. Um, I, uh, I want to put a question to you, to you three as well. Um, so I'll save that uh, to, to um done answering yours, Omar, but I, (laughs) I, um, I I think, look, like, I think there have been a couple of examples in my work with, with clear, with, uh, um, the creating law enforcement accountability and responsibility clinic at CUNY, um, which has been around since, you know, 
2009-2010. So spent most of its existence pushing back against um, you know national security policy during the Obama administration, right? Um, and, and was plenty busy uh, then, and and are plenty busy now. Um, there are some examples, some sort of heartening examples about the ways in which communities have organized to push back in ways that don't appeal to the law. So there's a story, if, if you look, I think it's in Gothamist, about um, a, a client of ours who was approached by um, ICE to inform because he was out of status. Um, and, and they asked him, look, your visa's expired. The only way you can stay here and send money back to your family is by informing on your community. Um, and he, he agreed, and he did it for some time. Uh, eventually, he came to us and said, look, I feel really terrible about this. I want out. Um, and, and, you know, I want to figure out how to get out. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if it means I'm going to be sent back to my home country. I'm not sure, but I can't, my, my conscience can't bear this burden. I can't keep going to my mosque, um, under the guise of prayer, um, and, and spy on my own community. Um, and so together with, with our client, we thought that one way to do this, um, um, effectively and to send the message back to the FBI that the community was also watching them um, was to sit down with the community members uh, who he had informed on um, us, him and them and have him tell them exactly what he had done. Uh, and he did that. Um, and we had that conversation um, and it's emotional even to think about it. I mean, he had that conversation with them. He told them exactly what had been happening. Um, and that the next meetup that he had with the FBI, he showed up with members of the community in tow, um, waiting for the FBI to show up. And so he and his lawyers and his community members, the ones that they had asked him to spy on, were standing there to let him know, hey, you know, we're here and, and we're watching. Right. Um, and so that sort of power being built um, is is really the, the kind of thing that I've seen over and over, the inspiring work that I've seen over and over um, in clear. We had another client who was in immigration detention um, who spent 19 months in immigration detention um, and we weren't winning in court. The court was recalcitrant. The immigration court was just completely bowled over by the fact that you know, the CBP officer was in there testifying about terrorism and, and she just didn't know what to do. Um, and so um, we began organizing outside of the court system. Of course, we're making the arguments in court, but we began organizing a petition. We started calling ICE offices to get him released. We started um, doing all sorts of things in order to sort of put pressure on the system with sort of community who really cared about this individual um, to, to really push back. So I think to your point, and this gets to the question I wanted to ask you all, um, and, and to the point that Silky made, I mean, lawyers played a real role in making this stuff worse. Um, and I'm talking about even well-meaning lawyers who pushed, for example, in, in Guantanamo for more process. Um, as a way of solving the problem, right? Who pushed for more regulation of drone strikes as a way of, of solving the problem. This idea that if we entrust it to Obama, theoretically in the in the uh, in the eyes of the uh, in the eyes of the right in this country, the 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 best good Muslim there is, right? <laughs> um, and if we if we entrust it to Obama, um, then you know 
it'll be cool. Number one, it wasn't cool under Obama. And number two, it was then handed like a loaded gun on the nightstand to the next guy who came. Um, so I wonder if you all have reflections on um, on like the role of lawyers in making this worse. And Sadie, I particularly wonder from like the outside perspective of a non-lawyer who's thinking about this in different ways, like how lawyers have screwed this up from your perspective too. <laughs> Um, well, I don't know if I, you know, can speak specifically to lawyers or non-lawyers, you know, degrees of screwing or not screwing this all up. But I can say that, you know, Tarek, to hear you tell the story um, about, you know, this really powerful moment of citizens and the community, you know, refusing to be divided by this, you know, false dichotomy of either you're working for us or you're against us, good, bad. I mean, just it's so powerful to think of, you know, the community saying like, we're not going to throw one of our own out because of this, you know, um, you know, division that's include, you know, de designed to hurt all of us. Um, and I think that really reflects something that we have learned just kind of, I think as a generation, you know, of activists and thinkers a bit more about taking care of each other, um, to be honest, and a restorative justice, even within, you know, um, organizing and within our own communities to have, um, you know, better ways of treating each other, better ways of resolving conflict, um, better ways of communicating and talking. And hopefully I, I really do see that our generation and, you know, generation that's coming up after us has a bit more of a nuanced way of trying to resolve challenges and problems, you know, outside of the criminal justice, quote unquote, system. And I think that that reflects, you know, hopefully a community that will be um, more impervious to interrogation because we have more solidarity together. And I think that that is hopefully something that, you know, is a lesson that was learned since my father's generation is like, you know, on the inside, we got to be communicating with each other so that there's no blackmail and drama and these beefs being fomented like on a really um, practical level, how treating each other better can actually give us a better chance of, um, of survival. Goodness. Loki, do you want to go ahead? Go ahead. Um, well, as, as the other non-lawyer on the panel and with a lot of feelings about lawyers, I'll just say, you know, and I think, Sadie, you're 100% right. Like, so much of this is about us working together and figure. And, like, you know, I think there's, you know, one example, and, and some folks might know this, in um, New Jersey, for instance, there's been a huge effort to closed down detention centers there. And in 2018, especially when the abolish ICE moment was really strong, there was actually um, Hudson County, New Jersey, which um, detains New Yorkers um, for ICE, um, which is like the county jail there, um, actually said, okay, we're going to phase this out because this is, you know, like ICE is bad. Let's do this. You know, a lot of organizing on the ground. And then a set of attorneys who had been contracted by the city of New York to, you know, to provide legal representation to those folks came out with a statement without any communication with organizers and said, you know, rather, you know, like 
we believe in abolish ICE, but the laws are bad. So let's just keep this so people don't get transferred. And it really, really hurt the movement. I think what's really interesting about that moment till now, and because of a lot of like organizing within those set of legal service providers and because of engagement with organizers and advocates working together to figure this out, now those attorneys have come out and said, actually, we do want to move away from detention. And I think this, you know, so much of this and, and and the challenges is that, you know, a lot of attorneys are negotiating like what is best for their client and we can have tropes about due process and et cetera. But the reality is we, what we've been talking about is actually like one, like due process just doesn't exist. Like the law is bad and the courts are bad. And we're in this negotiation where we're just like fighting for scraps constantly. Um, and so that's why like the organizing, the the sort of advocacy, us sort of working together to figure out how to move away from these systems is going to have to be essential. It's like you can do legal service provision all day, but it's ultimately a band-aid. It's ultimately a harm reduction strategy. And, and I think for us and all these questions, like what are the abolitionist approaches, the non-reformist reforms that are going get to get us closer to where we want to go? And I think the lawyers definitely be seem to be a group that it's a, it's a challenge, but you can you can get there. And I think um, you know I think CCR is such a example of doing that work and trying to to get us closer to there. Omar, I would love for you to take that a little bit further and and talk to us about the particular kind of you know movement lawyering that tries its best not to screw things up, right? That leads us and moves us closer to that horizon um, that Silky is talking about. And if you can talk to us about that, and I think I want to spend a, a little bit of time with you all just in this space of reflecting on what does work, what does keep us safe. I think, Sadie, this concept of, you know, we keep us safe and what that has meant. If you all can kind of, after Omar, if you want to talk a little bit, you know, we'll move into that space. Yeah, I, I really welcome uh, Tarek's question. As as uncomfortable as it can be at times to re to reflect on after so so long working on on Guantanamo issues. And when I said at the beginning, I was excited to be in this conversation. You know, this is part of what was in in my mind and on my heart. I mean, I think um, the history of Guantanamo really is a, a history of um, a deep professional and cultural um, reflex to believe in, in certain myths about the way our country and our legal system works. That if, if you could just get, you know, get lawyers to the prison and get recourse to the courts, you know, we can, we can untangle this, this brutal system. And of course, um, that's not, that's, that's not all the, the history of Guantanamo and we shouldn't really have expected it to be given the things that we know about, um, civil rights movement in this country and the fits and starts with legal victories that that proved to be hollow and and didn't provide the redress that that people needed so desperately um you know and i i think one of the ways at least for for me that i was you know again difficult lessons but really happy to have had them from uh really profound uh political prisoners at guantanamo including uh, Tarek boda who's a long-term hunger striker was you know very clear um, clear lesson about how, and from his view, from inside the cell that he that he spent, from inside his his hunger strike and um, the philosophy that he had around it, was that from the 
you know, the guard who locked his cell at night to the to the president, all part of the exact same apparatus of power that kept him locked up and away from his uh, his family and and petitioning to a judge wasn't going to really change that. It was going to be his his protest and his um, insistence that the government come face to face with with what it was actually doing to him. And and he was right in the end. Um, there was a limited role for lawyers in that case, but it was only to to be his. Uh, you know, his mouthpiece. And so I think, you know, what, what we're called upon now is to really invest in what has been you know, CCR's model of doing, uh, doing legal work, which is to, is to be um, as, as honest and as dedicated to the experiences of impacted folks as possible and to make sure that they are the ones leading strategy and to have real humility, not I mean, real humility, both in, in, in strategy and in the litigation approach about what can be accomplished and to make sure that it is one part of, of, a, of a social movement um, that includes artists and cultural workers, that includes people who have real vision about what a future can look like and then can put us on a path to achieve that with, with legal strategies when they're available and also knowing when, when moving you know, a, a case forward actually harms and takes the legs out of a social movement. And takes the oxygen out of people's rightful demand for, for protest. We try to live up to that, and um, but it's 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 good to have questions like yours, Tarek, to to reinforce that and, and remind ourselves. So I appreciate it. Thanks, Omar. And I think you know, as you're talking about artists and cultural cultural workers, and Sadie, again, just so grateful for you to be in this space with us and to you know also I think do what artists do, which is to to chart the future. Really, I was um, thinking about the role of artists in this movement work. Um, Nina Simone called it a duty. She said, you know, there's a duty of the artist to reflect the times. And I think what you're also offering is that there's, there's power in art to resist the times and, and to offer a space to think about what could and must be the world that we deserve. I wonder if you want to just share about that responsibility of, of artists in this in this work and in this world. Yeah, well, you know, um, I mean, I think it's um, there's so many ways to approach this work. And luckily, there's so many things that need to be done that I feel like, you know, there's kind of a lane for everybody. And I think Sometimes artists get it right and sometimes we get it wrong, just like lawyers or anybody else with a job, you know, trying to show up and, and do the work. And sometimes you make more questions than you have answers. And sometimes that's exactly what you need. And sometimes it's infuriating and you feel hopeless. And then, you know, hopefully um, more often you feel hope, whether it's, um, you know, because you actually feel hopeful or because you're choosing not to let that be taken away as a, you know, worldview and a guiding principle for doing the work. Um, so I think it's, it's all of that, you know, that I personally show up with to the studio each day, but I've certainly felt like, you know, this work and this story was kind of my inheritance, both as, um, you know, a gift and a wealth to share, but also as a responsibility, um, you know, a responsibility to uphold. Um, and, you know, I always try to make space in my work for thinking about the futures, for thinking about things that we don't quite have language for. So there'll be oftentimes in my work, um, a lot of glitter 
abstraction or taking um, you know images of a very regular pedestrian street corner or living room and you know blocking out certain parts with glitter or adding rhinestones to kind of suggest this magical world that's available right underneath the surface of our very regular um, world. And, you know, I guess just to say a little bit about what the vision is, you know, I'm sure some people will have heard it in this way a million times. And for some people, it might sound so far out and extreme and impossible to imagine. But I think just saying it is kind of what we have to do in this moment um, to make it real and to fight for it to be real. But, you know, I think what would really make us safer is for everyone to have what they need. Um, I think it's, you know, as simple, as complicated as that, you know, having a safe planet, having a safe place to live. So I think of it as really a world where no one wants to be the richest man in the world, like where that would actually be an embarrassment and would be frowned frowned upon. Um, I've learned just a little bit from like an Ohlone tradition about measuring wealth in terms of how much you give away. Um, so I think really like a mind shift to what it means to have enough to have a lot um, would be, you know, how we would dismantle capitalism and how we would decommodify certain um, things like housing and health and dignity and taking those things off of, you know, a market um, based system. I think, um, you know, a really international world, a world that's not about extraction. Um, you know, I think all of these things are going to be what ultimately, um, builds us safety. And also, you know, I think there will be so much more, um, fun and, um, creativity and so much of human potentials that we just have no idea um, because we're constantly fighting these like same battles over and over again on such a limited kind of um, scope of what humanity can do for each other and constantly, you know, tearing each other down with these um, cycles and cycles of war. So yeah, it's, it's huge and it's small and I have no idea, you know, exactly how that's going to happen, except for that we keep on showing up. And the fact that I know that people are risking their lives in very real ways to make these worlds, you know, come to, to be, whether it's, you know, hunger striking at Guantanamo. Um, I mean, how can you not have hope when you see people, you know, putting their literal lives on the line in that way? So we stay tuned. <laughs> wow. Sadie, thank you. And, and here's to that hopefulness. Here's to that vision that you are painting and building and making so much more real for us. I, I want to stay in this space of hope and particularly your, your invitation for us to consider hope a choice. Hope like cynicism is a choice. So choose it. Um, and I wonder if Silky, you know, kind of thinking about your your history as an organizer for this hopeful world, the world that we haven't seen, if you want to share kind of a moment of hopeful, beautiful resistance, what has worked that you want to just uplift as we think about, you know, this idea of what keeps us actually safe. Yeah, I think I think we have to 
remind ourselves of of those like shifts that have happened because sometimes it can feel really hard and Sadie that was beautiful and I think it's actually so grounded in a lot of abolitionist thinking of like what is actually the world that we want to see right like this isn't about just tearing down systems it's about what we're building up and um how we're taking care of each other and I think in terms of our work and I, I you know I think for a lot of folks who are working towards abolition last summer was just like an incredible moment of resistance and movement and um, opening up the floodgates of like what the possibilities were. Um, some of that occasionally feels like it's retreating. Um, and I think, um, but I think one of the things that I think a lot about in terms of our work and what we, towards the sort of beginning of the Trump administration and a bit during the Obama administration started working on was towards defunding, actually. And I think, you know, when you look at the DHS budget, for instance, it was, I think, 30 billion in the post 9-11 moment. It's like it was 90 billion this year. I, you know, it, and I, I don't even know the numbers on Department of Defense, but it's incredible how much money has been funneled into these agencies because of the, in the name of the war on terror. And, and I think this, this sort of perspective and understanding around defund the police and how much actually moving away, as Sadie was saying, from funding these systems and thinking about what we're going to fund in its place. And, and with defund hate, um, the campaign that we've, we launched a few years ago, where they were, you know, trying to put a lot of money towards the wall, but also secretly trying to put a lot of money towards agents and detention beds. Um, I think over the course of those three years, we were able to stop an additional $12 billion, which is quite significant. Um, so it continues to be a challenge, but it's so important that we've been able to at least <laughs> mitigate more harm that could be done. Um, but I think one of the things that's exciting about that campaign, too, is that those conversations are happening. And then also with people who are doing, you know, people over Pentagon or poor people's campaign, like how do we actually the intersectionality of these issues and how essential it is that we're moving towards um, that world that Sadie described. So I think that that work is so critical. I, I also think in as we move towards doing this work and, and also Sadie, what you brought up and Tark, what you're bringing up just and, and Omar, I mean, in, in so many ways, this is about protecting our people who are resisting because there has been so much retaliation, um, whether it's through incarceration or deportation um, or death in some way. You know, so I think in so many ways, we have to protect our people who are resisting. Um, we have to fight for those small wins. So for Detention Watch Network, that is those site fights, like stopping a new detention center shutting down an existing detention center, moving towards state policies that curb it. Um, I think it has to be a fight that, again, is intersectional. How is this, how are we doing this together with the movement to abolish police and prisons in this country? Um, and then I think, you know, as we look towards whatever this new sort of moment, this post-Afghanistan moment, not that it would be post anytime soon, but I, I do think there are some questions for us as organizers and activists um, 
about our, you know, what is our, what are our strategy, strategies towards anti-imperialism? And again, I do think defund is a big one here, but um, how are we doing that to, to ensure, um, you know, like people, people can stay in their homes, people can be where they want to be. Um, and then of, of course the ever ending climate disaster of the world, but there's, um, more people are aware, more people know, more people are ready to do things. And I think we have to hold on to that as much as we can. <laughs> Thank you, Silky. More people are aware and and building together. And I wonder, Tarek, before we just close, if you wanna share a bit about building that big we, and it, it relates, I think, too, to the internationalism you were talking about, Sadie, that you know, this is the big we, you know, the, the mass movement of resistance and of building that we are supporting and engaged with and inspired by, you know, how do we build and across communities? And I'm thinking particularly about the growing movement for Palestinian liberation, Tarek, and and your reflections on global solidarity, I, you know, both as a principle, but also as a strategy to building the world that, that we deserve. Uh, it's the only way. Uh, it, it really is the only way. Um, you know, so many of the logics that we're talking about here, um, be they defund uh, or, or as a strategy or abolition as a, as a goal, um, have global implications. Um, and those implications have been roundly recognized by, you know, organizing efforts here um, in the United States. It means something significant that the movement for Black Lives put in the vision for Black Lives um, uh, divest, invest, and included um, in, in name um, the three billion dollars that goes to Israel every year from from the American government. I, I think about this as um, a mass version of the folks showing up to the FBI interview. You know, I, I think about it as um, all of us deciding together when the feds come to be the heavy again. We're not going to take it this time. Um, and, and I think that's what ha that's what I felt um, and many felt this summer um, as as bombs were falling on Gaza, um, that the world together united and said, you know, this is not we're not going to allow this to happen. It means something. It's not uh, it's not insignificant that Ben and Jerry's has said we are not going to sell our goods in Israel. Effectively, that's what they've said. That's the output of their decision. That means something significant. Um, it's a domino, and dominoes tend to fall on other dominoes. Um, it means something that as the fate of Sheikh Jarrah is being decided in the Israeli Supreme Court, which has made dozen upon dozens of racist rulings that show the face of the Zionist project over and over and over again, it means something that this time there are hundreds of journalists outside waiting to find what happens, right? It's an accountability mechanism to have that there and to know that the world is watching as this stuff um, goes on. So so to my mind, like I do, I do think it's a moment for, for hope um, in this way. Um, I do think that, you know, the, the sort of, the next time that that each each next time that the feds come and ask us to show up, um, I believe that more and more of us are going to stand behind um, those who are being called. And I think that's the only way.
Thank you so much, Tarek. We are nearing the end. And I just want to thank you all so much for sharing, for diving deep, for engaging with each other. And um, it's an honor to be part of this community with you all and to be building. Um, Silky, Sadie, Omar, Tarek, thank you so much. Um, thank you so much to Haymarket Books for creating this space. Thank you to our interpreters, Aisha and Gloria, for um, interpreting and offering ASL. Um, making this an accessible and inclusive conversation. We're so grateful for you. Um, and we hope that you all will join us for each event. This is a four-part series that we're organizing throughout the fall. So please stay tuned for more of these kinds of conversations and reflections and imaginings. I hope everyone has a great night. Thank you again so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.